Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family... From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Today on Loose Units, we are looking at part two of He Mowed the Lawn, a look at a 12-year-old who potentially did something very, very bad a long time ago. Dad, last time we dealt with this case, we got right up to the brink of when I believe the police had sort of closed in. Now, could you walk us through what happened next? Hmm. Okay, so I'd like all the listeners, which there are millions and millions, to just, and if there are any 12-year-olds, well, you shouldn't be listening, Mm. but... You know, I'm thinking about when I was 12 and I was a bit of a rat bag. Um, There's a lot of history as to why people become the way they are. How was I at the the, the age of 12? Was I a handful? No. No, you were a uh, walk in the street. No, that's not the right term. Walk in the park. park. (laughs) Yeah, walk in the park. Although to say that, because of course... Quite obviously, unless you lived in the park, mm-hmm. you'd walk along a street to get to the park, which I think is fair. I, I mean, I was involved in a, a minor crime when I was around about that age. Nothing that would warrant a true crime podcast, I'm sure. Mm, I organised something rather nefarious. Um... And, and the spoils of this particular <laughs> crime. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. Would you like to tell the story, Dad? <laughs> you know, people are already acting weirdly uh, with the last story on no, those ends. People no, are I'm... finding it very humanising that you... We, first of all, people are finding it very humanising that uh, we've been talking about poo so much. But tell us just quickly the story of I can't your tell you criminal endeavours. I can't tell it to you quickly. So how about as a treat, okay. we make it this week's Loose Ends. But it involves something that I'm not not proud of. And ultimately, the police were called. In fact, detectives were called. What the fuck? Okay. All right. Let's... 
we're going to shelve this and we're going to get back to dad's criminal history. This is, I mean, how funny would it be five seasons in of a true crime podcast? You actually admit to something on air, which gets you arrested. You're so funny, Paul. Um, no, I was the mastermind of a, of a, of a minor crime. Okay. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great yarn and it had very positive ramifications for my life. Let's get back to this story because this story I, 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 I reference myself. You know, this is a, a case because the the local police officer, the senior constable, mm-hmm. senior constable Connolly, because he was so in tune with the 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 residents of this small town. When the it, it was clearly an ex, extraordinarily horrific, as we've discussed with our listeners last week. Uh, I did mention that terrible number 24, uh-huh. which is uh, we were not referring referring to two dozen eggs, although although her the smashing of an egg may well be sort of tied in visually with what happened to her skull. Oh God! So okay. the and sorry for people that are having eggs as we speak, but this senior constable he immediately informs the detectives. Um, that there was this this boy, this twelve year old, mm-hmm. and you know there there'd been incidents, and of course, the homicide squad uh, immediately made a beeline for this particular uh, boy's house, and being twelve years of age, he had to be interviewed with in the presence. With the guardian? Yeah, well, in this yeah. case, his mother. Okay. And from the outset, I would like to stress that the mother and stepfather and siblings were upstanding citizens of this community. They were held in high regard and there were no indicators of what was about to become revealed in the first record of interview. Now... The boy, he, and this is very important, listeners, that he was so calm, so collected, which in itself is bizarre. And of course, something else that I've been thinking about, I've been pondering this particular story, is that what's going to be revealed is his exceptional level. He's clearly very intelligent and his mind is working like a criminal who is very, very seasoned. But then I was thinking about the internet and and social media and mobile phones, and you see children, you know, kids in high school, for example, 12, 13-year-olds in groups all on the phone. Once you're on the phone and you've got an internet connection and you've got access to, you know, Google, for example, Mm -hmm. well, we know that there are no limitations. There is nothing you can't download within reason, but it's yeah. still pretty creepy. And of course, children today, should they follow this path that this young boy may or may not have taken, uh-huh. remember that television was very different back then as well. It's unlikely that he went to the local library and, and fervently. Is that a word? Fervently? Fervently or feverishly, I think. I love it. Fervently. Fervently sort of 
yeah. you know, devoured crime novels. Mm. This is, and that that is one of the aspects of this case that is so fascinating as to how his mind worked. So when the sort of detective sergeant and his colleague from the homicide squad arrived to do a record of interview, yeah. they simply say to him, were you near, you know, the, the deceased's home on the day? And he says that he'd been out hunting for pigeons. He played with his brothers and then he left. And he's heading home and he happens to walk past the lady's house. But that's when he starts to create version one of his story. He says that he saw a male person and he describes in graphic detail this particular guy standing outside the lady's house. Now, if that's not enough, he then says that he'd seen that same person two weeks prior buying petrol for a motorcycle at the local service station. Okay? That's fairly elaborate, isn't it? Yeah. So, they they get his clothing, they take his clothing with the permission of the parents and they obviously regard this boy as a prime suspect. Sure. The next day, the local police, of which it's not, it's a, it's a fairly small community, so there aren't a lot of police. They call in a few police from other outlying towns, tiny towns. Yeah. And they begin a search. Now, any police listening will know what that means. They're looking for some type of weapon, some object that has been used in the commission of the heinous or heinous crime of beating her skull in. And they find in a rear lane, fairly close to the lady's property, an old toilet block. And underneath the toilet, they find this long bar that's bent Mm -hmm. and attached to the bar is hair and blood. And then they have that tested and they prove that that is in fact the murder weapon. And basically what happens is they then go to the, the kid's home so they've already interviewed him once. Yeah. And the two local police, they go to pick up the boy because they're going to bring him back to the station where the homicide squad detectives are working. Yeah. And this often ha- often happens in policing where they get the guy, the, the boy, he's 12, they put him in the back of the police car. And as they're just chatting with him, taking him back to the station, he then makes certain admissions. And the police have to say, look, we can't use this in evidence. You're going to have to sort of, you know, say this during the record of interview with the detectives. Just, just quickly, let's say, for example, that there was an unsolved case, you know, like this one at this point, and then let's say something terrible happened, the child died, something went wrong, and the last piece of testimony was delivered outside of a record of interview in a, in a car to two police officers who have a vested interest in finding a 
prosecution for the case, could their testimony of his admission off the record ever be admitted into evidence in any way? No. No. Really? Because how do you know that it's real? Oh, that's true, but... Oh, jeez. Okay, so there's a real reason why they want it to be watertight, have it yeah. on on the camera. And as you pointed out, um, back in the 80s in Sydney, there was a real problem with verbaling. Correct. Did you walk, walk us through... I was involved verbaling in verbaling. I was involved in it regularly. I, I, I witnessed it okay. all, on, a, on, a, on an almost... Well, definitely on a daily basis in the early 80s. Right. Detectives were renowned for... And not only detectives, some general duties police... Um, and it was simply a matter of during a record of interview, you'd ask a question, did you enter the property at such and such a time? The person being interviewed says, no, I did not. But the other police officer who's typing says, yes, I did. Um, and when I got inside and they, then they can just create this extraordinary, like a fairy tale. Yeah. And then at the end, of course, they get the prisoner to read it, and the prisoner says, I, I did not say this. Then they beat the shit out of him, drag him off the floor, covered in blood, bloody knuckles. It's just, and then they'd sit him back down or throw him down or tie him to the chair and say, Now, was any threat made to you in making this statement? Yeah. Then they'd beat the shit out of him again, beat him to the ground, kick him, drag him back, and eventually. Look, I've seen record of interviews signed in blood, okay? It seems so profoundly evil to me that this is even a thing. But mm. okay, so basically what I'm trying to get at, Dad, is a... there is a, First of all, there is a reason in the legal profession why you need the, um, the person to actually say on the record, on the tape, so that it's irrefutable that they, in fact, admit this thing. And what the police were doing in this era... Uh, by which I mean the era that uh, you were a cop and not all police, obviously. But what was happening with verbals was a perversion of that apparently watertight system. And uh, you mentioned at one point that it was so prevalent that people were... It was graffitied on yeah. on walls. and Yeah, on, on sides of railway bridges. <clears throat> I mean, not all police, not all detectives, of course. Not, that's it's insane to, to assume that everyone... Of course. Did, because, and you didn't need... I mean, if you're a really, really great detective, yeah, you didn't need to. But it must be frustrating on the, the counter to that argument is, of course, which is not which is crazy for me to say this, but it's the old adage of, yes, we know you did it, but we can't yeah. prove it, which is frustrating as well. So yeah. this, this young kid, this 12-year-old, he hops in the back of the police car and he says to the two general duties police, who are certainly not detectives, he says, guess what? I killed her. He, t he just tells them outright. You can imagine the police, they're thinking, shit, okay, this is insane. So he, he tells them on the way to meet the homicide squad and he, sim he says this to the general duties police. He said, I was riding my bicycle past Mrs. Shannon's home and I heard a banging noise. So he runs to the, f the back door and he sees Mrs. Shannon standing at the back, okay? Yeah, yeah. And her head is, do you recall in the first episode we mentioned the tea towels covered in blood? Yeah. Okay, so I said to the listener, look, just remember that particular point. And he sees her standing there and she's got a tea towel over her face and it's literally, and blood is pouring out of her nose. God. Okay? Yeah. Now that's clever. And that will become more so important as we move through this story. But you can see what's happening now. And it's difficult for me talking sort of, pulling it back into real time, because I know why he said that. 
Okay, well, don't, because I'm actually, last episode I felt, and listeners, I'm, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I felt like, in fact, no, Dad, you complimented me. You said I missed my calling. Mm. I made what I thought was some pretty canny deductions, and yet I don't know what's going on That's here. Good. Just That's good. Just yet. Okay, so then he says, yeah, and he's volunteering information to these two police, and he kind of knows one of the police. We, we may recall that that senior constable had been involved a number of times mm-hmm. in sort of, you know, oh, the complaints during the ongoing problem with the lawn mowing with the, with the sixty dollars. Okay? Yeah, the, yeah, the 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 uh, the business agreement they'd entered into, which he had only paid her back five dollars, mm-hmm. and that that makes it even sadder. This whole story when we're t- t- talking such paltry amounts of money. Yeah. So he then says that she invited him into her house, and he goes in, and then. What he says is that she locked the door behind him, okay? She's got this bloody nose. He's standing there. He's, according to him, very, very scared, of course, because so, all of a sudden this woman who's got blood coming out of her nose, bloody tea towel, he's, she's invited him in. He knows that she, he owes her money. This is his story. And she locks the door. Then guess what she does? She grabs a knife from the kitchen. Oh, and she starts taking a swing at him. Yeah, okay. And then she chases him around the house. Okay? And then what he says is he picks something up. There was just something lying around. Uh-huh. And he just whacks her over the head with it. Now, the poor mother, listeners, is in the back of the police car at the same time. Yeah. Listening to this. And she's... This it all be news to her, right? Oh, 100%. The parents yeah. are just... Trust me on this one. They're, they're, they're good people. And that will become more, more revealed as the story progresses. So the Homicide Squad, they conduct their, technically, their very first of three record of interviews. Okay, And the Homicide Squad said that there was no problem or difficulty in establishing that this boy was responsible for the death of Mrs. Shannon. That's not, that's not the issue. The problem is to get to the facts, okay? Because if the boy can present evidence that it's self-defense, which you can see he's clearly starting to do, mm-hmm. then it's a, it's a completely different kettle of fish, isn't it? And he's volunteering this information Early-ish. Very, very. And creating this this story. Yeah. And at this stage, you know, it's, um, it's, it's very clever. It shows you how his mind is, is working at a level that is, as the homicide, as the detective sergeant from the homicide squad said, and I'll say this again if I didn't say it last week, this boy, this 12-year-old, he presented, in terms of his cunning and ability to, to create these false stories, was well in advance of a lot of hardened criminals. All right, so where does this come from? So the, the mother and the stepfather... Um, are present and the boy 
repeats his original account given to the police. Okay. That was off the record. Yeah. And then he adds a few extra things. He says that he'd seen spots of blood on the kitchen floor and he grabs the weapon and he says that he tries to leave. Okay? He tries to get away from her. Mm. Of course he couldn't get out because... She locked him in. She locked him in. And she's so, apparently at this point quite crazy and unstable, bleeding, going after him. Yeah, so. attacking him. She's chasing him with a knife. So he's basically painting a picture in which he has no choice but to... Well, maybe not no choice, but... It's okay. really interesting when people admit to a plausible halfway point, which is still admitting to a crime, but a far less serious oh, crime. very much so. Yeah. If you can prove self-defense... Yeah. It's... it's yeah. Now, we may recall, he said he grabbed this weapon, this bar, from the lounge room floor. Yeah. Then he says that he actually got it from the laundry. Now, the laundry, of course, is outside. Now, what does that tell you? It's so fascinating. It means that, well, what would you surmise, Paul, uh... He says he's locked in. Yeah, if the weapon's outside, then what it says to me is that he gets it. He grabs the weapon and then goes into the house. Now, if she's gone, come into the house, he's not going to go, just just wait there one second, old lady, nip around the corner, grab the bar, or worse, still do it in front of her. So, Isn't that bizarre? So, I mean, if he had have stuck with the story that the bar was inside the house, that was more plausible. But now it's, it's problematic. Yeah. Because the bar's outside, he's then come inside. Yeah. Now, that, that to me and to the police would indicate premeditation. Yeah. If a crazy woman with a knife is sort of, you know, it, it, you're not go- you are not going to run out, grab a weapon, go back inside and, and hit her. No. You're going to go home or you're going to call the police. Okay. Now, the, then he says, interestingly, that he only struck the deceased twice. Okay. And he said that he only hit her on the forehead and the jaw, okay? And he says he has no knowledge and he denies attacking her and hitting her on the skull at the back. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What would his argument be, that she fell, maybe? No, but see, as the police said... Yeah. Um, and we, we, I will reiterate this, that her entire rear of her skull, yeah, the entire rear of her skull was completely removed. And they had all the electrical wire embedded, Bakelite. And he also then says that he keeps coming back to the tea towel on her face. Yeah. And then... Because this is interesting, the tea towel. That's that's just remember that for a little while. But then he also says that he goes into her bedroom and he touches a tin. But then he says to the police, which is really clever, he he said, "Yes, but I'd also been in the deceased house many times prior." Yeah. Now that's clever. In terms of fingerprints. Yeah. And. They then go to the toilet block. So they, they, they take the stepfather, the mother, the boy. In the they alleyway. Take him in the alleyway and yep. they show him where this broken Bakelite. So they find the weapon, but there are also pieces of broken Bakelite. And it turns out that the boy had collected from the, the deceased person's floor. Mm. He collected all the broken Bakelite. And he gathered it up, took it with the weapon, discards it at the toilet block behind the property. Did he not... I, I Look, I know he's 12, but did he not think that people might find all this shit together and draw some conclusions? And again, it's so weird because I can't really criticise the criminal nous of a 12-year-old, but what was his excuse? You know how there was this... The, the police found a key at the scene. There was a key on the floor. Well, also, we also now know that the boy had also stolen a key. Remember that? Early in the first episode? That oh, yeah, yeah. She, she, had a, she felt that this key was gone. And it turns out that this boy had the key. And it turns out that he'd actually entered her house. He's got his own key. They located the key. It had also been thrown into the backyard. That's his key. What happened was they took him to the crime scene inside the house and he saw, this, this 12-year-old saw a senior constable Rutter. Now, that's fascinating in that I actually worked with him when I was oh, at the wow. Central Fingerprint Bureau. I worked right. with him. And the boy sees the fingerprint expert mm -hmm. dusting for prints, for latent fingerprints, okay? Yeah. This is so interesting. 
he then, because he's watching a fingerprint person in action, and you can bet your bottom dollar that that's the first time in this boy's life he would have ever more than likely seen this sort of thing happening, that then gives him more information, feeds into his into his brain as to he starts sort of figuring out other, you know, things that the police may or may not and what will they be finding fingerprints on. And then he says that's why he threw the key away because he thought that the fingerprint expert might have developed fingerprints, okay, on the key. Yeah. And then we come back to the knife, Paul. Remember the knife? The knife was loosely, and the boy, it right, turns out, loosely, yes. loosely. But the boy then says that he actually, he, he says that, of course, he sticks with the story that she was armed. Yeah. But he says, because now he's seen a fingerprint guy working, what does he think? He thinks, shit, fingerprints on, on the knife. So yep. he then says, it's like he's preempting what the police are thinking. And he says, right. yes, I, I, I took the knife out of her hand mm-hmm. and I wiped it clean so there'd be no fingerprints on it and i then placed it back slight problem he put it back in her left hand they then proved beyond a reasonable doubt guess what she's right-handed she was right-handed an old lady is not going to be carrying a knife around uh in her non-dominant hand especially if she's injured if you're injured and you're out of it you'd revert to your default correct yeah and also the the medical experts uh, the coroner had determined that because she was undergoing such horrific, basically having the back of her head stoved in with a weapon, yeah. it would be impossible for a human under such trauma to maintain a grip on a knife. Okay? So that comes into play whereby the boy, in his, in his cunning, mm-hmm. located a knife, all part of the story, and then positioned it in her hand. And then, and of course, there were no fingerprints on it because he'd wiped it clean. And then he, apparently, they, they charged him with murder, okay? Which is, a, which is a heavy thing. And according to the information that I've got, he then became very, very upset. And he said to the police, look, and the mum and dad had just gone home, so he's, he's feeling depressed. He's been charged with murder. Parents have gone home. And then he says to the police that he hadn't told the whole truth. Okay? So the police then say, okay, stop. And he says, no, I, I have to tell you, I, I went and we were arguing over this debt, and I hit her as hard as I could. The police then say, please don't say anything else. They then had to get the mother back to the police station. Imagine being the poor parent. And they had to conduct the second record of interview. The detectives are uh, working away doing this record of interview. And he still maintains that she invited him inside. And then she, he says that they had an argument about the debt. Yep. And that she goes into the kitchen, returns with a knife. And he sees this and he hit her as hard as he could three times. Okay. He then says... The story about the tea towel with the injury to her face was a lie. But he needs he needed that story because he, he knew that these tea towels were covered in blood. Now, what do you think he used the tea towels for in reality? Cleaning up the... Correct. Okay. To clean the blood off the kitchen floor. Yeah. Okay? And 
what happened, Paul? Initially, he said that he, he hit her just once, then three times, and he sticks with the three. Yeah. But he said it only happened in one location. But right. now, of course, through scientific, the, like the drops of blood everywhere, which he had indicated maybe a, a bleeding nose. Very, very clever. He's so clever. He's saying that, of course, there's blood in other rooms because her blood, her, her nose was bleeding. Nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. But, Paul, what it does show a jury is that he beat the shit out of her in various locations and probably she was trying to get away from him. But he knows that. He knows that if he says it only happened in one location, she's got a bloody nose, it doesn't make it look as bad, does it? As him wielding this weapon, chasing an old lady around the house, beating the shit out of her. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, Dad, I've known a lot of people in their preteens who are pretty cunning and crafty and lie a lot, but watching it happen with an act as evil as this and seeing how committed this kid is to sort of sticking with the lie, but also keeping the lie moving. I mean, you're right. It wouldn't play well with the jury, the visual of a 12 year old chasing an old woman around a house, especially a 12 year old who knew the old woman. And I guess at some point technically worked with her. I mean, they, they would have at some point had something approaching a friendship, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monstrous, frankly, monstrous. Yeah. Now, when he was cleaning the kitchen yeah. with the tea towels, wiping up the blood, he hears a car driving past. It's a quiet town. He shits himself. And that sort of really unraveled him. And he also, the police say, okay, but, you know, did you take anything else from the property? Which he denies. All right. So, in the second record of interview, um, and and he's saying that he made attempts to clean the lounge room and make it appear, again, that it was only in one room, he said he became aware that, you know, scientific examination would, um, you know, would sort of exonerate him in terms of the blood on the tea towels, but then he sort of came, came good and... Then he then said that well, after the, rec- the second record of interview, the, the boy says to the mother that he wants to say something else. So they reconvene for the third record of interview. And then he says that he actually he admits to stealing $100 from a tin because he also realizes because he'd seen the fingerprint guy dusting and he thought, shit, my, my, my prints are going to be on the tins. And he, he did sort of make reference to touching the tin. But then he says to to the police, look, I stole $100 after I'd killed her. He, this is really sad, listeners, what I'm about to say. He said that he told the police that he'd since spent $5 of the 100 on sweets that evening on lollies. Which kind of pulls you back into the that thing about being a twelve-year-old, I guess. Yeah. And the parents uh, and the police—they found the outstanding ninety-five dollars in his bedroom. Now, then they began to delve more deeply, and they found out that earlier that year he'd spent seventy-five dollars. Now, that's a lot of money back in the seventies at a local electrical store where he bought a cassette radio player and some cassettes now this young boy this is prior to the murder 
Right. When he went to the local shop, he actually said, and he had $20 notes, and he said to the shop assistant, can you please make the receipt out in my brother's name? And he says to the shop assistant that his mother has got no time to buy Christmas presents for the kids. And the mother's given the boy the money. And of course, they interview the mother and the mother says, that's just not true. I'd already bought my young son a bicycle. Isn't that sad? The mum had bought the kid a bicycle. And she'd never seen the radio player. She'd never seen all this money. And interestingly enough, they then come back to the weapon. They tried to figure out what it was, and it turned out to be a thermostat. And they went to the local bakery, and the owner of the bakery said that he recognised this this sort of thermostat, but apparently it was made in a way that it was completely straight. And of course, I've seen the pictures of the murder weapon and it's bent horribly. And the reason it's bent, of course, is that that's the force used. So it was, as the weapon was being driven across the back of the elderly lady's head, and skulls are tough, might I add. Yeah. yeah. It just bent, the sh- bent it completely out of shape. And... The owner of the bakery said, yes, I actually, we'd had this thermostat replaced 15 years prior and it's been kept all this time in a back room. They go into the back room and guess what? Thermostat gone. But they couldn't quite identify what it was actually this thermostat. So then they wrote away to Scotland Yard in London and they got in touch with the manufacturer. They then got photographs of the of what it used to look like, covered in Bakelite. And it was a very uh, sort of heavy implement and it was straight. So that was that was the, um, the weapon, which makes it even more scary in that this boy had gone to this place, this bakery, and located this, this well, soon-to-be weapon... Yeah. And yeah, it's um he'd used that. Now, some people are going to be asking was there anything in the child's history? Now, what I will say is that he was 12 months and sorry, 12 years and 6 months old at the time of the offence. Yep. He lived with his mum and dad in Western Sydney until 1975. Then his natural father was convicted of rape and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Now, at the time of this incident, uh-huh. his his natural father was still in custody. The, the man, his father, had a lengthy history of violence and he was being treated as a maximum security prisoner. And he'd had no contact with the family, but then he found, about, found out about his son and he was given special permission under jail escort to visit his son. And this is when the story goes completely haywire, listeners, because the father then gave the boy instructions and also told the boy how to make allegations against the the police. And this is a 12-year-old, and the father's just giving him basically a... um, you know, coaching. And then on the final record of interview, the the 
Detective Senior, like the sergeant, uh, he realised that the, the father had actually been sort of tutoring and coaching. And then the boy says at the end of the record of interview, which is quite chilling, he said, I'll just quote here because I think it's important. Let's try and find this, Paul. Isn't a heavy story? It's really fucked up, yeah. Oh, we'll need to finish uh, shortly. You think we're almost done? Yeah. Yeah, great. It's, it's um, okay. i just got to find this at the end of the record of interview. Sorry, mate. No, it's okay. I can literally, I can snip this, you know, as always. No stress. I'm just trying to find the record of interview information. Oh, here we go. So, Paul, on the final record of interview... The detectives, this is the very last time they interviewed the boy, and they just noticed a complete change, and he'd adopted a very arrogant attitude, which was exemplified, and I'm quoting here, in his final answer when he said, this is the boy, the 12-year-old, he says, regarding the interview, I am not going to read it, I am not going to sign it, I shouldn't have signed the other ones. That's what he said to the detectives. Okay. They find out that the father, who's in jail for rape, had coached the boy. Then the boy says, in relation to... He then questions the government medical officer. Can you believe it? And he says, in my opinion... This is the boy, 12-year-old speaking to the detective. He said, in my opinion, the government medical officer didn't know what he was talking about. Okay? He said, I, as for hitting her 24 times, that's just not correct, even though the photographs and the evidence is, is clear. Yep. And... The child was then examined by the government psychiatrist and they fa- they failed to find any abnormalities or illnesses, nothing. They said he was a bit of a loner, yep. he liked sport, and all his other family, the kids, siblings, the mum and dad, the stepfather, they were all, they were just absolutely, there was nothing to indicate, nothing at all. And... Now to the end of the story, Paul, and this is the part that you that you are unaware of because I've saved probably the most terrible part of this story for the very end to get your 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 Action. visceral reaction. Is that he was put before the court and charged with the murder of the elderly woman in her late eighties, and he was sentenced to get ready for this five years with a non-parole period of six months are you fucking kidding me no and mrs shannon's son was present during this sentencing now the son was so distressed that he made 
a a handwritten sort of plea to the Attorney General, which was um, ignored. And the Crown, which is the, it's Crown verse, that's how it is, okay? The Crown are the prosecution, and then uh, he would have had a defence counsel. The Crown appealed, which they often do, and it went before three judges in the Court of Criminal Appeal. And... On the 20th of December 1979, the Court of Criminal Appeal handed down their decision, which was that Child's period of detention remained the same of five years, and they varied the non-parole period from the original six months to a period of 12 months. Okay? Now, the police uh, were, were clearly, because I've, I've sort of read the subtle undertones of this particular story, and the police were obviously, they have their own views, but it's a very interesting story in that the police their job is to present the facts okay they're not involved in sentencing now that boy uh would have been out of jail in 1980 very very close to when i joined the new south wales police force and should that boy have never come into um the police sort of radar again and that I don't know. I've tried to do some research, but I can't find anything. It's a very, very under-the-radar story. It's feasible <clears throat> that this person may well have in, sort of, um, you know, gone back into society. I don't know whether, um, you know, the family... I just can't imagine what, what it must have been like for the, the family. There may oh, be... But- Sorry. How old would uh, how old would this guy be now? Um, he is well. He'd be in his mid fifties now. Okay. He could be he could be a school teacher. Yeah. He could be a train driver. He could be he could have gone to university. My feeling is that he's highly intelligent. Certainly, certainly, quite brilliant in terms of um, the effort that he made. Uh, he could he have become a police officer? Mm, probably not, because to join the New South Wales Police Force, they do take your fingerprints and search them. Yeah, there are so many, um, so many questions. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, it's troubling. If I had have been in court when my mother. If this had have happened to my mother, your grandmother, and that type of sentence was handed down, yeah. I just think they're... I just don't understand. It just seems on the light side. Uh, it'll be interesting to get some feedback from our listeners. Uh, but on the balance of probabilities, that person is alive. As I said, uh, could be married, could have children. It's just... It's an extraordinary story. Um, didn't happen that long ago. So yes, that's from the the annals of the New South Wales, um, you know, one of those cases that is is not not spoken about, but so it, it, interesting, just deeply disturbing, mm. super intense, and frankly frightening to think about what this person could be doing right now. I look again. I know that the um, rehabilitation of people is important, but that is very disturbing stuff. So. Mm. 
I guess I'd say thank you, Dad, for telling us another story from the annals of Australian true crime, especially one that, frankly, I'd never heard of. But thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for this disturbing two-part look at a murder from back in the day in Australia's true crime history. I'm Paul. That's John. We'll be back later this week with Loose Ends. But in the meantime, everybody, thank you once again for listening to Loose Units, The Shadow Files, and we will see you very, very soon. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.